Thanks for joining us for today's message. We encourage you to visit southernhillslv.com to watch or listen to past messages. We hope you enjoy today's message from God's Word. Well, to begin today, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Uh, which do you want first, the good news or the bad news? What do you want? You want the bad news? You want the bad news first. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you the good news. Okay, you want the, because I'm, I'm a good news person, I want it. Good news is you made it to church today. Give yourself a round of applause. That's right. You've been waiting all week. You're finally here. This is very, very exciting. Uh, are you ready for the bad news? The bad news is the church is in the middle of a fight, like a huge fight right now. And so if you're new here, don't want to get awkward or weird, but the church is in a huge fight right now. Now, it's a fight that's been going on, and I need you to choose sides, okay? Um, it's a fight that's been going on for a thousand years. It's not just our church, it's the entire church throughout church history. For a thousand years, the church, oh, you thought I just meant here. No, it's like all over, all right? The church is in a fight, and I'm gonna try to summarize it. It's a theological fight. I'm gonna summarize it with two words. The first word is victor, and the second word is exemplar, okay? Victor and exemplar. Uh, say the words victor and exemplar. You'll be speaking Latin. Uh, victor, exemplar. Victor, exemplar, Christus victor. It means that Jesus Christ is the victor of our salvation. He is the one who died upon the cross and substituted himself, died upon the cross, paid for all the sins of mankind, and in doing so has completely secured your salvation. He has conquered death, conquered the grave, conquered hell, and saved your soul. Jesus Christ, victor. Say victor. victor. All right, very good. Then there's another side over here that is exemplar. Say exemplar. Jesus Christ is the example for every single Christian, the example that we are to follow. He lived a good life. He lived a holy life. He lived a perfect life. He's the one who cared for others that others did not care for. He took care of others. He loved others. He was kind to others. He was careful for others. He lived an exemplary life, and we are to follow his example. Say, exemplar. Christus exemplar. Ah, the big fight. Now I need you to have a choice. Now, you say, well, Pastor Josh, which one would you choose? That'll give away the sermon. Okay, so instead of having you decide yourself, I'm going to decide for you because I'm from the U.S. government. I'm just kidding. Okay, all right. Just joking. I'm just kidding. Relax. All right. On this side, <laughs> on this side, you're going to be victor. Say, Jesus Christ is our victor. Say, victor. victor. On this side, you're going to say, exemplar. Jesus Christ is our example. Say, exemplar. Okay, now I want you to get up and fight each other. No, don't do it. All right. That's what's been happening for about a thousand years, all the way back to Thomas Aquinas and a bunch of other people are fighting in the Middle Ages about this concept. Which one is he? And entire denominations have sprouted from this fight. Theological treatises have been written. Fights have been happening, not just at the national or the international level, but even at the local church level. And you say, why would you bring this up? Because it very much has to do with our sermon today. And it very much has to do with a lot of sermons to come as we make our way through the book of Luke. You see, today continues a sermon series entitled The Wonder Years, Episodes in His Backstory. We're telling the story of Jesus by studying verse by verse through the gospel of Luke. And in these five sermons that we began last Sunday, we're studying little vignettes, episodes, moments in the life of Jesus that kind of tell us more about him and who he is and how we as his followers should understand him. So today's sermon is called Teenage Jesus because there is one vignette, story, episode where Jesus 
is a teenager. How weird to meet Jesus the teenager, right? Well, if you're ready to meet Jesus the teenager, give me an amen. amen. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 and following. Would you like to see growth in this coming year? Would you like to see growth in this coming year? How many of you, how many of you, thank you, sir, yes. This is one child that is allowed to come back to our church. Amen. This kid's ready to go. 2022 can be that year. Do you want to soar like never before? I know it sounds very cliche, but in reality, I want 2022 for you to be a great year. Regardless of what takes place nationally or internationally or locally, regardless of what takes place, I want 2022 for you to be a great year. If that's to be the case, you need to learn this secret attribute of teenage Jesus. The secret attribute of teenage Jesus. What is it? Well, we're going to study verses 20, uh, verse 41 through 52. You're going to see the same concept. Listen to me, theologians. You're going to see the same concept rise over and over and over in these 11 verses. The concept is submission. Say the word submission. Submission. Obedience is the idea. The one outstanding attribute of teenage Jesus was that of submission. I have three teenagers. Anybody have teenagers in the home right now? Raise your hand. How many teenagers? Pray for these people. Pray for it. I'm kidding. I love teenagers. How many of you um, have kids right now, but you don't have teenagers yet? They're not yet. How many kids right now? They're not teenagers. Raise your hand. Have you heard the stories, right? Oh, it's scary. Oh, it's like, oh, you're going to die. You're going to kick them out when they're 12, you know. Some of them, maybe, but not all. In fact, it's, a lot of that's not true. Our perspective, we have three teenagers, 13, um, almost 16, and 18. And, uh, and, and, and in our opinion, in our opinion, um, I'll tell you what to expect, okay? They are, at this stage, as teenagers, they are the most fun and the most, most filthy. <laughs> Those are the two sides. The most fun and the most, you say, no, I have an infant, really filthy. Tr trust me on this, okay? It gets... It gets worse. Okay, most fun. I mean, for example, like we love to sit down and have dinner as a family. We're laughing and joking. Their personalities are fully formed. They've got a lot of exciting things. It's really a lot of fun. We love to travel together. I just drove 36 hours from Las Vegas to Lynchburg, Virginia with my son, dropping him off for a second semester at Liberty University, doing a great job. We have a lot of fun together, but they're also disgusting. As humans, what I mean, as humans, their rooms, you know what I mean? It's bad. It's bad. It's really, in the, in the car, it's really bad in the car. For years, I thought it would get better when they were children. First thing my son did in my brand new Hyundai Elantra, Hyundai Elantra. I, I bought in 2007 a brand new Hyundai Elantra because I'm a fancy guy. Because I spare no expense. I bought an Elantra in 2007. Brand new, beautiful. You remember it, Michael remembers. You remember my Hyundai Elantra, beautiful. And first thing, I put my kid in there. We drove across town and he's like, I don't know, three years old, and he threw up all over the car. Every, like every, it was, and I can talk about it now. He's not here. You know what I mean? Everywhere. And I, it took months to clean it up. And then every summer, the smell came back. <laughs> I had that car for like a decade, and I still smelled little three-year-old John, the filth. But then when they get to the teenagers, here's the thing. You'll stop and you'll get food for the family, right? And I know you got this don't eat in your car rule, right? That'll work for a while, and then it won't. And then, and you've got the food, and the kids take the food, and I've seen him do this many, many times. 
we're driving, and he'll take a napkin or a crumpled wrapper, and he'll just, like, he looks at me, and they'll just put it on the ground or stuff it in, in one of the compartments. They just stuff it there. Do you understand, Jeffrey, what I'm saying? They just stuff it in the car, your nice, clean car. You say, I just got it clean. And they'll put their handprints on the window with the greasy taco grease, and they'll just leave it. And they don't care because they're filthy. <laughs> Talking about teenagers today. I say, oh, Pastor Josh, when I have teenagers, my car's going to be clean no matter what. I'm going to have kids. You ever have these people that don't have kids, but when they have kids, that they know everything? When I have kids, my car's going to be clean, blah, blah, my car's going to be clean. Let me tell you this. I, I'm absolutely, utterly convinced at this point in my life, if you have a clean car, you're not a good dad. That's it. That's Because <laughs> you don't spend time with your kids because they're filthy. Back to the sermon. Okay. The one outstanding attribute of teenage Jesus. You say, well, Pastor Josh, you say he was outstanding in submission. He was Jesus. He was outstanding in everything, right? I mean, he was, right? But that, you, you think that because you and I as Christians often overemphasize the deity of Jesus Christ and we underestimate and undervalue the humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not just fully God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, full deity. He was also fully man. Say, oh, I get what you're saying. He was like half God, half man, like Hercules. No, he was 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. Theologians refer to it as the hypostatic union. He is fully God and fully man, which means practically he struggled and lived the same human life that you lived. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to get thirsty. He knows what it is to grow tired. When he was a baby, he would cry. You ever remember, you know, at Beth, uh, Christmas time, remember the song in Be about Bethlehem, oh, little town of Bethlehem, and there Jesus was laying, and no crying he made. You know what I, you know, it's just trash theology. It's not true. He was a human baby, and human babies, what do they do? I have people, parents will tell, oh, Pastor, I was so embarrassed, my baby cried. And babies cry. How many of you agree? Babies cry. Say Amen. I was on a flight last night for five hours. There was a baby crying behind me, and I was remembering my sermon. They're only human. They're only human. You know? <laughs> Babies cry. And baby Jesus cried. Okay, some of you are going to really be offended, genuinely so, because you don't know your theology, and I love you. That's truth. Um, you're going to be offended with this next thought. Jesus wet his diaper. Jesus made messes that Mary and Joseph had to clean up daily, multiple times a day. Jesus had to be potty trained. Don't, don't say thus things to me, O thou scholar of scripture. It's true. He was fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ, when he was a four-year-old, went outside, ran around Nazareth, tripped and fell, skinned his knee. Skinned his knee. His knee got skinned with blood. I'm assuming, we don't have that story, but he's a boy. Jesus Christ, at the age six or seven, he was out in the, the Nazareth in the dirt, wrestling with the little boys, having fun, being a little boy. He came in all sweated, sweat coming down his face and dirt and his hair all matted and ran up to his mom. That was Jesus Christ. The little boy, just no different than any other little boy yet without sin. You see, just a little boy. Jesus Christ went through puberty. Jesus Christ had probably acne. 
This is who he was. He was 100% God and 100% man. Why are you telling us all of this, Pastor Josh? Because you need to understand it was a very difficult thing to learn how to submit as a human. See, as God, he never had to submit or obey anyone. But when he became a man, he had to do what you and I all have to do. We have to place ourselves under the authority of others and obey. And it was not easy for him to do it. In fact, I would say it was more difficult than it is for you and I to do it. Because anytime his parents told him to do something, he could have just went poof and they just vanished. But he didn't. He still chose to obey the laws of his nation. He chose to obey his parents. He chose to submit himself to the Bible. He chose to submit himself to God. He submitted. And today I want to share with you this, that if he did so, you can too. The one attribute that stands out to me in the life of teenage Jesus is that of submission. And I think the writer Luke explains this very well in three parts as you arrive in Luke chapter 2, verse 41. The first person or the first way in which Jesus submitted himself, to whom did he submit? The first way in which he submitted himself, number one, was to the Bible. He submitted himself to the Bible. I'm going to say he submitted himself. You say the Bible. He submitted himself to the Bible. To the Bible he submitted himself. Look at what it says in verse 41. His parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Every year at the feast of the Passover, they went to Jerusalem. Why? Why did his parents? You say, well, it's an annual tradition. It's like a holiday. It's like a festival. You go to the thing. Yeah, but why did they do it? The answer to that question is that Mary and Joseph, parents of teenage Jesus, went to Jerusalem every year because that was the law. It was what the Bible told them to do. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and 16. Remember, Mary and Joseph were submissive to their Bible and what the Bible said to them. Three times a year, he told all the men will appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. And the feast of unleavened bread at the fe feast of the uh, uh, weeks at the feast of tabernacles. And he shall appear, you shall not appear empty handed. That is, you're to bring a sacrifice to the Lord your God. Now, the poor people of the nation that traveled from all over the nation to arrive at Jerusalem for the tabernacle feasts. They were to do so, but the poor people only really had to come to Passover. And that's exactly what Mary and Joseph did. So every year, Mary and Joseph, because Joseph was obedient to the law, went down there. Now, the Bible says that Jesus goes with them this year, which is unusual. Didn't always happen. Look what it says in verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Why did Jesus go up at 12 years old? Well, it's because of the tradition of the day. You see, a 13-year-old boy who grows up in a Jewish culture, even to this day, goes through a special ceremony. Does anybody know what it's called? A bar mitzvah. And Jesus would have been celebrating his bar mitzvah a year later. Many times we forget the cultural roots of our faith. It is a Jewish faith, and we worship a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish carpenter. Jesus Christ grew up in this way. And so he was going to celebrate his 13th birthday the following year in Jerusalem, celebrating his bar mitzvah, becoming a man. What was tradition is to go a year before. And as a year before, the father would take his, take his son on a spiritual journey through the city, introducing them to the priests, introducing them to the system, letting them see everything, teaching them the laws, and prepping them for their next year's bar mitzvah. So that's what Jesus is in the midst of. So he arrives up there with his parents, verse 43, and they had finished the days. When they had finished the days, the days of what? The days of Passover. It was a celebration of a feast. They returned, the boy Jesus 
Uh, so they, Mary and Joseph start going back to Jerusalem. And the boy, Jesus, lingered behind in Jerusalem. You ever have a teenager to stick around too long, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like you're going, you're like, let's go, let's go, let's go. They, they, Jesus did the same thing. He stayed there in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother did not know it. Say, how is that possible? Well, because of the way these people traveled. Remember, this is the days of antiquity, 2000 years ago in the Middle East. You did not just jump in a Toyota and drive. You didn't even just, you and your family go alone. Oftentimes, for the feasts, you would travel as a community group. It would not have been unusual for Mary and Joseph to travel with their family all the way down to Jerusalem in a group of hundreds and hundreds of Nazarenes, people from Nazareth. They would have traveled in a group. And in doing so, they would have done what many of us would have done. You travel with your friends, you're talking all day, all the kids groups are back here with the kids pastor, all the teens are over here with the teen pastor, and Jesus had just promoted up to the youth group, you know, so he's excited about being with them. And, and they're all traveling 90 miles, which would have taken about 10 days. And they camp out at night, and they keep going, camp out at night, keep going. They finally arrive, celebrate the feast, and head back. And now the community of Nazareth is going back to Nazareth, and they leave behind one key member of the community, the Son of God. <laughs> so, so Mary and Joseph are like hanging out with their friends and they leave behind you know, Jesus Christ. Now, let me just stop here and say, if you think you're a bad parent, at least you never lost the son of God. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph in, in, in the sight of God one day, God at his throne, he's like, what did you do? And they're like, we lost your child. You know, what I mean? this is a big thing to answer for. This is a, this is a problem. We left Jesus. And so, what does it say in verse number 44? But supposing him that they had been in the rest of the company, they went a day's journey. They left for an entire day. And they sought him around the relatives and acquaintances. They start looking around. They're like, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? You know that feeling at first whenever you lose something and you're like, it's cool. Have you seen my phone? Hey, anybody seen my phone? Anybody seen my phone? Where's my phone? You know that feeling? And this is a child. And it's not just their child. It's the creator's child, the only one he has, and they lost him, verse 45. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Ugh, what a stressful situation, verse 46. So they get to Jerusalem and they find him within a few minutes, right? Look what it says. So they were there, and after three days, three days, they, <laughs> they, they didn't know where Jesus was for three days. That has freaked me out. By the way, the writer of the book of Luke is not being so subtle here, is he? That Jesus was gone for three days and then found again? Isn't this a little bit of uh, literary foreknowledge pointing to another three-day absence of Jesus? But nonetheless, for three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers. Sitting, what, this is weird. They, they go to the temple and Jesus is there and there are a bunch of rabbis sitting around discussing theology. And Jesus is sitting in the middle of them. Now, what was tradition, again, during this time, was after the festivals, the rabbis from the different communities, the religious leaders from the different communities, a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees would stick around for two or three days after the feasts, and they would have like, um, we would call it like a pastor's conference. And they would sit and discuss theology and have meetings and celebration and talk at a deeper level of the, uh, of the priesthood. That's what they would do. And so imagine, here Jesus is, he sticks around with the rest of these priests to discuss theology as a 12-year-old, and they walk in on him, and they see him doing this, and look at what it says 
uh, uh, let's see, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, I want you to place yourself in the position of Mary and Joseph. I, we, I, do, I go to pastor's conferences. In fact, we host some of them called Idea Days, where pastors come together and they discuss theological ideas and ministry ideas. And oftentimes what happens at the end of a pastor's conference is pastors will end the day, go to a Denny's for like four and a half hours, and sit there at like from like eight o'clock till one o'clock in the morning discussing theology. It's really awesome. It's really a lot of fun. I love it because that's what I do, right? And so they're sitting there. Now imagine you lost your kid. Your 12-year-old's been gone for three or four days. You're searching the entire town. You show up at Denny's. There I am and a bunch of pastors and your 12-year-old is in the middle and he's teaching us and he's asking us questions and he's answering our questions about theology. Now you have the understanding of what Mary and Joseph are going through. You're like, we're angry and confused. That's what's going on. Now, and so the Bible says in verse 47, and all those who heard Jesus were astonished at his understanding and his answers. This was some kind of a child prodigy. They didn't understand who he was. Something special about this kid. Well, yeah, he's Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, he, he had all of this knowledge because being God, he knows all things. Oh, absolutely, God knows all things. But in this moment in Jesus Christ's life, we're going to see this later, he had, through his divine power and sovereignty, limited his own divine knowledge so that he could grow up as a typical human being. And so the things, what's fascinating here is not that God is talking to man and sharing all the things God knows. It's that Jesus Christ in human flesh, having limited his own knowledge and his own life experience, knew so much about the scripture because as a human young boy, he, with perfect mind, not affected by sin, granted, grew in his understanding of scripture all the way up into this point, learned the Bible, and was obedient to the Bible to the point where he could discuss it with adults. Wow. Verse 48, so when they saw him, they were amazed. Well, I'm sure mom and dad were like, what is going on? And they got a different lesson than I'm going to give you out of this. And I want you to get the first lesson. The first lesson that we see is that Jesus Christ was submissive to the Bible. Why did Jesus Christ go to Jerusalem? Because the Bible told him he needed to go to Jerusalem as a young man. How did he know so much about the Bible? Because from a very early age, his parents and his community and his rabbi had taught him the Bible. He is submissive to the word of God. Some might say, but Jesus Christ is the very word of God. Jesus Christ is the author of the Bible because he is God. How could he be submissive to that which he authored? Well, just like no king is over the law, but under the law since the time of the Magna Carta, so it is true that Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, submitted himself to the written word of God, would not break the law. In fact, Jesus Christ specifically addressed this. He said, I did not come to break the law, but to fulfill the law. He wasn't there to discard what the Bible said. He came to fulfill what the prophets said. All that to ask this question. Here, here, here's what I want to ask you. If Jesus Christ was submissive to the Bible, don't you think maybe you should be? It's a very simple point from a very simple preacher. If Jesus Christ himself said, what does the Bible say? I'll, I'll obey that. Why don't, why don't we do that? Are we better than Jesus Christ? 
we see number one, he was submissive to the word of God, the Bible. Number two, he was submissive to God the Father. I'm gonna say number two, you say God the Father. Number two, look at what it says in verses 48 through 50. And when they saw Jesus, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, have you ever been so frustrated that you said something to your kid that you are glad did not get recorded in scripture? You know what I mean? So Mary, as awesome as she is, she's confused, a little angry, frustrated. For goodness sake, I understand. She, she lost her kid for four days. Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. She lets him have it. What does Jesus say to his mother? And Jesus said to them, why did you seek me? Jesus is a little, why? <laughs> Didn't you know that I would be around my father's business? Jesus, in a very pointed way, said, my father? You mean that guy? You realize that guy's not my dad. I have been around my father's business. Was Jesus being rude to his mother? No, I don't believe so. Was Jesus being sarcastic to his mother? No, I don't, I don't believe so. I think Jesus, even as a young man, was reminding his mother that I am here for a greater calling and I love the man who raised me, but my true father is God the father and I must be submissive to him. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ was. He was submissive to God the father, but look at what it says in verse 50. And they, Mary and Joseph, they did not understand the statement which he spoke unto them, why? Why, why didn't they understand what Jesus was saying at this point? Why? The, here's the answer. Because they did not fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity. That their son was fully God and fully man all at the same time. They had forgotten this because they raised him and changed his diapers and wiped up his skin knee and watched him go through acne. You understand? The doctrine of the Trinity, for those who aren't familiar, you might be saying, well, Pastor Josh, I don't fully understand it. Well, you're in good company. Neither did Mary and Joseph not understand it. But this is the best way theologians have described it. We say that the doctrine of the Trinity is this, that we believe in one triune God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal in being, co-identical in nature, co-equal in power and glory, having the same attributes and perfections. One God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence, where we would say that God, the Son, is God. God, the Father, is God. God, the Holy Spirit, is God. But the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, and the, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. They are separate but equal persons, all in what we call the Godhead. This is how theologians and preachers have been describing it for thousands of years, and this is what the Scripture teaches. Though it's not a full a, a concept that is so readily and easily grasped as you understand, the basics, I could say it this way, he is fully God and fully man. I'm gonna say Jesus is, you say fully God, fully man. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Say it again. Jesus is fully God, fully man, all at the same time. What do you need to know about his submission? Here's what you need to know. Being fully God, hear this. He willingly set aside the independent use of his own divine powers. and submitted himself fully and wholly to God the Father. That statement, it's gonna take a minute to sink in. 
he willingly set aside his independent use of his own divine powers and submitted wholly to the Father. That means this. Did Jesus Christ have the power to turn water into wine? Yes or no? Did Jesus Christ have the power to walk on water? Yes or no? Did he have the power to do anything he wanted? Yes or no? Yes. Did he do it anytime he wanted? No. Say, when did he perform a miracle? When he got the check from, from above. When God the Father said, yeah, you can do that now, that's when Jesus did it. For 30 years, he performs no miracles, not all the way until John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. You say, why didn't he? Because he couldn't? No, he could do anything he wanted, anytime he wanted to, but he willingly did not perform his divine powers until he got permission from God the Father to do so. Does that amaze you? There's all sorts of apocryphal stories about Jesus growing up that are not found in the Bible. Stories that people have made up over the years. For example, one time, little, little kid Jesus was playing in the dirt, and he made a clay pigeon, and he turned the pigeon into in, in, to life, and it flew away, and everything. Where'd that story come from? It's made up. It's not in the Bible. There's another story of Jesus that, that he was out playing with his kids in Nazareth one day, his friends in Nazareth, and some kid was being mean, and so he killed him. He, Jesus killed Kid Jesus kills kid. You know, that's a headline. Nazareth times. You know what I mean? It's just made up. Not a true story. Didn't happen. Because Jesus did not use his divine powers unless God the Father gave him permission to do so. He submitted himself to God the Father on a continual basis. You say, how do we know this? Well, Paul writes about it to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 when talking to Christians. And it's the whole point of this sermon. Paul says to the Christians in Philippi, he said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but instead he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and became in the fashion as a man. As, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord according to the glory of God the Father. Why did Jesus Christ submit himself to God the Father? Here's why. The reason he submitted himself and became a servant is because he knew his life was part of a bigger plan. And so Jesus Christ was willing to submit himself to the Bible, willing to submit himself to God the Father, because there was something bigger at stake than just his independent will to do whatever he wanted anytime he wanted to. Let me ask you a question. Are there any followers of Jesus Christ in the room? If you're a follower of Jesus, say amen. Okay, so follow him. Submit yourself to the Bible, submit yourself to God the Father because your life is not about you. It's part of a bigger plan. Here's a man with a bow and arrow. He's a great archer. He's standing at the edge of a battlefield. They say, draw the bow. He draws the bow. His arm is shaking. The bow is bent. The thread is taut and he aims it and he can see his opponent's down the way. And at any moment, does he have the power to release and let fly and strike his enemy? Does he have the power? Yes or no? Does he? No. Does he have the power to do it? Yes. Does he let it go? No. Why? Because he's waiting for the authority to release him to do so. 
Why? Because he knows this battle is not about him and there's a bigger plan going at stake here. Does this make sense? Christian, hear me, please. We, as Christians, in a society like ours, have a very difficult time submission, submitting to anyone. And I'll tell you why. Especially as Americans. Man, I love being an American. Because one of the things about being an American is that we value what's called independence and autonomy. And these are values and virtues that are celebrated in Scripture. Hard work, independence, and autonomy. It is a beautiful thing. Aren't you thankful for autonomy, independence, and hard work? Can I get an amen? But sometimes we value these things so high that we become so autonomous and independent, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And that is anti-Christ. That is not what Christ does. Followers of Christ are, yes, independent and willing to stand alone. And if nobody's going to do right, I'm going to obey God and obey the Bible, even if nobody does. You have those moments. But a lot of moments are also submission. What do I need to do? What do, how do I need to follow? What do I need to do? What do I need to obey? How do I need to obey? Jesus Christ exemplifies submission in that he, as a teenager, submitted himself to the Bible. Number two, submitted himself to God the Father. Number three, he even submitted himself to his parents. To his parents. I mean, he had to, right? Wasn't one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother? And if Jesus Christ broke that law, so look at what it says in verse 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And look at the next five words. And he, it says, and was subject to them. He spent the rest of his child in submission to his mom and dad. After it was fully known that Jesus knows more than them. Jesus is more spiritual than them. Jesus is more godly than them. Jesus is more famous than them. Jesus has everything, yet he still chooses to submit himself. That is, willingly place himself under the leadership and authority of another in order to accomplish a bigger plan and a bigger purpose. Submission, hear this, Christian, is a Christian characteristic. So I ask the question, to whom are you submitting? I'm not going to tell you who to submit to. I'm asking the question. To whom do you submit your life? He's like, nobody. Okay, there's a problem there. To whom do you submit your life? Some of you say, okay, I've got God in my life. Awesome, fantastic. And you can do what a lot of humans do. We can manipulate whatever we want to do and say, God told me to do it. So who in the world are you actually submitted to? Nobody. Then you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you haven't been born again. I'm not saying you haven't been saved. What I'm saying is you're not a follower of Jesus because Jesus submitted himself. Now, I, I, I prayed a long time as I was preparing the sermon. I'm like, how can I explain submission and give an illustration of submission? And I thought, well, I'll just give you an example of my own life. In my life, technically, I don't have a lot of people that I have to answer to. I can just do whatever I want to do. Even within our church structure, even in our denominational situation, I don't have a lot of people that are like, if you don't do this, you'll be fired. I do what I want to do. At least I could. But what I've done is develop, and you've seen me show this chart before, what I've done is develop a board of mentors and coaches to which I submit myself to. Because I know that life is not about me, and I'm part of a grander plan. So for me, I have a spiritual mentor, someone who's asking me about my spiritual walk with God. I have a ministry mentor 
people that talk with me about ministry and how to lead. And before I make major shifts or changes or decisions within the church, I go and I talk to those people and I think, what do you think? How can I go? This is what I'm thinking. What do you think? I need to hear. And if I have these people around me that are saying, this is a bad direction, then I don't just lone ranger it. I submit myself to this group. You understand? I'm saying, who is it for you? a preaching coach, a theology coach. I have a life coach. I have financial expert in my life, a family expert in my life. I have an accountability partner and I have my wife sitting right beside me. And there are not major decisions made in my personal life. There are not major decisions made in the church life. There are not major decisions made in, uh, in my career or with our children until I first go to these people and say, okay, this is what I'm thinking. These people also know they have a right to come to me and interrupt me even if I didn't ask their, their, their permission. Hey, Josh, you know, I noticed you're going this way. What's going on there? Why are you doing this? How are you doing this? Being willing to submit and not say, who are you to tell me I'm a free man? I'll do what I want to do. And I'm, listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying two things. Number one, this works. That's pragmatism. And this is biblical. That's scripture. Who, who do you have in your life? Who do you submit to? Who do you listen to? The church is in the middle of a huge fight, huge fight. It has been for a thousand years, so don't freak out. And the thousand years they've been fighting over Christus Victor, Christus Exemplar. Is Jesus Christ the victor of our salvation or is he the example that we are to have imitation? I don't know about you, but I'm already beginning to think, you're probably where I'm at, maybe it's a little bit of both. Can I get an amen there? Maybe he is also, the, he is the victor of our salvation, the one whose blood atonement paid for the sins of mankind and personally substituted his death for my death so that I don't have to die and go to heaven. He is the conqueror of death, hell, and the grave. He defeated Satan. He's the victor for me. But he's also the perfect example to follow. And if he is Christus exemplar, Christ our example, should we not follow his example and submit ourselves to the Bible, to God the Father, and to other human beings who are even maybe less than us. In the final verse we're going to study today, it shows you the result of submission. I love verse 52. Is it okay, fat pastor? All right, I'm going to submit myself to my parents. I'm going to submit myself, if you're a child, I'm going to submit myself to my spouse and uh, husband and wife mutually submitting to one another. I'm going to submit myself to spiritual authority. I'm going to submit myself to my boss. I'm going to submit myself to whatever it might be, the police officer that pulls me over. I'm going to submit myself. All right, if I submit like I'm supposed to submit, what's the result of that? Look at what it says in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. He grew mentally, physically, spiritually, and socially. Look at the result of Jesus. Jesus, our example. You want to grow mentally? You want to have intellectual growth? You want to have physical health? You want to have spiritual strength? You want to have social acceptance? You want 2022 to be better for you? then surround yourself with some people you can trust and submit to them. You say, that's gonna be messy. It can be messy, yeah. So this last week, like I said, I, I drove my son, JT, 36, 
36 hours from here uh, through the mountains all the way to Virginia. 36 in the snow. Why don't you take the southern route? Because we want to go snowboarding, baby. Can I get an amen right there? <laughs> Woo, yes. Went all the way through, 36 hours, nonstop, except we stopped in, 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 uh, in, um, for food and stuff, but we also stopped in uh, Colorado and snowboarding. It was so nice. And I already knew what I was going to do. We, we, got, we got in his car and, and drove. We're going to drop off his car. His car. We got in his car to drive. It's so funny. The day before we got ready, he went out to the car wash, got it detailed. As soon as he came back from the car wash, I said, this is my chance. <laughs> it was so good, man. We got in the car. We started driving up toward Utah. First stop was like in St. George. We're going to get some tacos. <laughs> I didn't say nothing, man. He's driving. I said nothing. He, we got in the car, and, we're just, and, and I looked over at him, and he's ready to drive. And I just took out that taco, and I just started <laughs> lettuce, cheese falling all over the place. Has some sauce on my hand. I wiped it on the window. What's up? I took that taco wrapper <laughs> multiple times. Like, I'll tell you, this is not even a, through the whole trip. I took the wrapper and I looked at I just looked him like right at him while he's driving. I looked at him and just threw it in the back. <laughs> he, would, he, looked, he looked over, what are you doing? And I had the same answer, what? That's the same answer he gave me for 15 years. What? <laughs> same question I asked him. What are you doing? He said, what? Now it's my turn. What are you doing? What? <laughs> I trashed that car so bad. <laughs> so good. Here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned. Here, here, here's what I've learned. That life is easier, simpler, and cleaner when you travel alone. When you don't surround yourself with a bunch of people that have their way and their will and that have good counsel and advice for you, it's a whole lot simpler, easier, and cleaner. I'm telling you what. Some would have said that Jesus' life would have been easier, simpler, and a lot cleaner if Jesus had just done his own thing. Ignore the Bible, ignore his father, ignore his parents. But he knew that his life was part of a grander plan. submission was the key to his growth in all four of these areas. I do believe that he is our example, and I believe that we can follow him, learning to submit to those around us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you that today we've learned that Jesus is fully God, fully man, the third divine trinity, and now our opportunity of following his example in submission in our human lives. Help us to do just that. Be with my brothers and sisters today as we contemplate these truths and attempt to live them out throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If God has used this message to impact your life, we would love to hear from you. Please send an email to connectdesk at southernhillslv.com. If you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so at southernhillslv.com slash give. We are always encouraged to hear how God is using this church in Las Vegas to reach God's people around the world.